All right, today, before we get to the heart of the lesson, I want to take a little meander through time. And we're going to follow the golden lampstand as we go along life's road here. Uh, after the 40-year wilderness wandering, the tabernacle was camped semi-permanently at various locations until David brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem. It was his desire to build a permanent house for the Lord, but God said no. And so David, instead of building the house, prepared everything for the building of this glorious temple. He amassed all of the supplies that would be needed, all of the gold and silver and bronze and all of the rest. In fact, in quantities so great, it just boggles the mind. And he passed this treasure trove of supplies and materials to his son Solomon, along with the blueprints for building the temple. In that first temple in Jerusalem, Solomon built 10 golden lampstands to light the, the uh, holy place. Then, many years later, Nebuchadnezzar sacked the city of Jerusalem over the course of three separate assaults, and he took as plunder all of the furnishings and all of the utensils from that temple. And you can read some about that in uh, Jeremiah chapter 52. Then the book of Ezra describes rebuilding the temple by Zerubbabel and others, and that one was subsequently desecrated and ransacked by Antiochus Epiphanes in what is called the Abomination of Desolation. Then we travel still further through time, and the new lampstand was made by Judas Maccabeus, according to, and this is an extra-biblical book, the first Maccabees, chapters 1 and chapters 4 in that book, detail the rebuilding of the lampstand by this man. In fact, we call Hanukkah uh, what they call the Festival of Lights, and it was a commemoration of the dedication of the temple and a miraculous provision of oil that allowed the Hebrews to burn the uh, lights from the lampstand for eight days. And you can always tell the difference between the Israeli symbol of the golden lampstand from a Hanukkah menorah, because the Israeli lampstand has seven branches and the uh, menorah has eight. So if you pull out a menorah and you want to uh, celebrate Hanukkah, make sure it's got eight branches on it, because you'll need all eight for that celebration. Now this photo is a portion of the Arch of Titus in Rome. This whole arch, the whole structure, commemorates the victories of Titus Vespasian, including the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. So this is the destruction that Jesus spoke of when he was ministering in and among the Hebrews in Jerusalem area. And as you can see depicted from this frieze, they are carrying away the plunder from Herod's temple. And there is a single lampstand there in the center. That temple, Herod's temple, as well as Zerubbabel's temple, they only had one lampstand each, like the wilderness tabernacle. And so that brings us to today. If you want to follow the course of the lampstand, as I did several years ago, we went with a very large tour group to Israel. And I understand some of y'all are getting ready to go 
on a tour of your own. It's amazing. It's an incredible experience. And so I'm jazzed for those of you who get to do that. My favorite part, I think, of the whole Galilee, I mean, the whole Jerusalem trip, Israel trip, I'll get it out eventually, the whole trip to Israel was the Galilee region. It's just absolutely beautiful. And so much of Jesus' ministry took place there. So I think if I had to pick a favorite spot, it would be that. But in Jerusalem, there is one memory that is just emblazoned in my mind. And I may have mentioned to you on more than one occasion, I'm really jazzed about this Bible study of the tabernacle. It's something that really has just changed my life. And because I have studied it for so many years and have taught it, I was so excited when I saw that our tour was going to be taking a turn in the Institute, the uh, Temple Institute in Jerusalem. And this was back in 2008. In that time, the Temple Institute was in the heart of old Jerusalem in the Jewish quarter, and it was down in a basement set of rooms. And the first of those rooms was a gift shop kind of area. And as our group went in, we were ushered into a secondary room that had some seating, and there were glass cases around with the very various articles and some of the furniture pieces for the temple. They are ready. Every single detail is prepared and ready for the establishing of the sacrificial system again. So as we were in there, they told us we were not allowed to take any pictures, but this one. They asked one of the men from our group, his name is Tom, if he would like to come up and hold these uh, features, these design elements for the golden lampstand. Tom said they were very heavy and they are segmented. So each one of those things that you see there are separate pieces and they were the reservoirs for the uh, oil for the lampstand. Now, if you look, I don't know if you can see in the picture, but between Tom's face and his arm, behind him is a mannequin that has the high priest's garments. See, we were not supposed to take pictures, but this one was an okay picture to take. And so in it, we have a picture of the high priest garment. And if you look between the outstretched arms of the tour guide is the altar of incense, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. So just kind of, you know, I rule booked them by getting this picture. I don't think I took it. But anyway, Tom said it was quite heavy and beautiful. The detail in it is absolutely exquisite. And then it was time for us to be done. So we exited the Temple Institute and went out into the street and everybody started, you know, eating falafel. And it was lunchtime. And falafel's not really my thing. So I just let that go by. And while everyone was having their little ordering and having their nosh, we were on a buddy system. So we were not allowed, we were supposed to go anywhere alone. Wisdom. And I was with a friend named Patrice. My husband, I think, was eating falafel. And Patrice said, you know, there's this little art gallery right next to the Temple Institute. And she loves art. So she said, I'm going to go in there and just take a look and see what they've got. Great. So it's downstairs, remember, it's a basement. So I'm standing up on the higher and I'm just looking around this ancient city and these ancient cobblestones. And I started thinking about all that we'd seen in the Temple Institute and I thought, where's the lampstand? We saw the pieces, but where's the whole lampstand? Maybe they haven't built it yet is what I was thinking. So I poked my head in the art gallery and I said, Patrice, I'm going to go ask the rabbi, this guy, you guys, who's over six feet tall, this rabbi that gave us our, our little tour there in the institute, bright redhead. You couldn't miss him if you tried. And I said, I'm going to go ask the redheaded rabbi where the golden lampstand is. So I walk back over, go down the little stairs. I'm standing in the doorway and I say, excuse me, where's the golden lampstand? 
And he said, I'll show you. And that guy, I don't know if you've ever read, I'm short. Six foot tall man has legs that run, you know? He was up those stairs and down the street and I was chasing him before I even knew what was going on. We were around corners, up and down, and around more corners. And I'm running at past the falafel crowd. And I'm going, I'm chasing the red-headed rabbi. And I don't know where we're going. Forget the buddy system. But we turned around, and at one point out of my periphery, I see there's Patrice running behind me, and the pastor who was assigned to our bus was with us, and maybe two or three other people. I don't know what we looked like, but here's this giant of a man with his shocking red hair, and we're just running, running, and all of a sudden we turn around the corner, and bam, the golden lampstand. It was newly made and just put out there on public display. It was awesome. I was so glad to see that there were people around, around with me and the red-headed rabbi. And then he said to me, would you like me to take your picture with it? Yes! <laughs> now, mind you, I had just run through the streets of Jerusalem, pell-mell, and I was... <laughs> <laughs> it was so exciting. I loved it. And there it is in all of its glory. And you see how all of the assembly pieces are together on the branches. You don't really get a good perspective from this shot. So here's another picture that gives you an idea of the size of this golden lampstand. The rabbinim have been busy creating and preparing every single piece of furniture, all the utensils that are needed. All they need now is a place to erect a temple and they can begin the sacrifice of worship. But I would suggest that all they need is a tent, and a tent could go up overnight as soon as they get permission to be up there on Temple Mount. So that was a fun and exciting thing, uh, especially for someone who has been a student of the tabernacle for a long time, and I blessed the Lord for it. So now what we're going to do is rewind clear to the beginning. We've seen the golden lamp stand in all the temples along the way and the one that's prepared to go. But let's go back now to Mount Sinai when God is speaking to Moses and giving him the blueprints to build this magnificent piece of furniture. In your handout, you have those details listed for you. You can take those home and study more in depth. The building of and the moving of information is there. And so the location of the golden lampstand is in the holy place. The holy place is also known as the first tabernacle. The tabernacle itself was a long, narrow, tented structure with golden walls. But it was divided into two portions. There was a veil that divided the holy place, or what is called sometimes the first tabernacle, from what was behind the veil. That is sometimes called the second tabernacle. It's all one structure. The walls and the ceiling are all the same. It's just divided by that veil. So here you see that the um, golden lampstand is on the southern wall in the holy place. The materials used to build it, a talent of pure gold with all its utensils. A talent of pure gold is approximately 132 pounds of gold. And another material to list there, the clear oil of beaten olives to fill the reservoirs for the lamps. And you find that in Exodus chapter 27, verse 20. 
The dimensions then, other than the weight of the gold given, we are not given the dimensions for the lampstand. It's also known as, depending on your Bible translation, the golden candlestick. That's a little misleading because candles use wax and there's no wax involved here. But sometimes, especially King James type, it's called the golden candlestick. It can also be called the menorah and the lamp of God. And having accomplished that, let's turn to Exodus chapter 25. And we will read God's instructions to Moses for the building of this beautiful, exquisite light source. Exodus 25, we will start in verse 31. Remember that the materials were donated in a free will offering, 132 pounds just for this one piece of furniture alone. That's an awful, an awful lot of uh, exquisite material, building material. So we read here in verse 31, then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand from its one side and three branches of the lampstand from the other. Now, I will confess to you, as we read through this description, it turns my brain to mush. I don't pick detail up very well from a, uh, a written description like this. If you have a mathematical or a scientific artistic bent, this might make a lot of sense to you. So we're going to brass it out, thus saith the Lord, and uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, which we'll have here in just a minute. Verse 33, it says, three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in one branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower, so for six branches going out from the lampstand. And in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. Now, what I take this to mean is that verse 33 is describing those six branches. Each one of them has this almond motif decoration. Each of the branches have three of these decorative pieces. The main shaft or the vine has four. And I have a, a variety of pictures that I have just gleaned off the internet of artists' ideas of what this looked like, including the one that is at the Temple Institute now. And I think, in my mind's eye anyway, what we should see is that the six branches are all at the same height with the central shaft being slightly taller. And I will explain why that is as we go, maybe next week. But anyway, so you have the central that has four of these decorative pieces. Each of the six uh, come out, coming out of the side of the uh, central vine have three sets of this decorative work. It says, verse 36, their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it. All of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it. 
Its snuffers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. Again, God somehow lifted the veil between the temporal and the spiritual and showed Moses the real deal in heaven. When you get to heaven, you all can be a tour guide and you can tell everyone what you have learned. As we enter the tabernacle, we are met with this single source of light. It is not natural light. Natural light is outside in the courtyard, but now you have entered through the one and only door and you are in the holy place and you are greeted with this beautiful golden light. First John 1 5, John says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I would like for you to take note as you study scripture on your own, how many times you see light and truth linked together. And we see that throughout this study. Verse 7 in John chapter, 1 John 1, But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. It runs this way and this way. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from all sin. King David said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And we know that we have been invited into a rarefied position to be priests, a royal priest in, in God's household. So as we study these pieces of furniture, yes, everything points to Jesus. Every detail is about him in some way. But it is also telling us what our responsibility is as priests, ministering, serving, and worshiping the Lord Most High. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a privilege we have in Jesus. When you get a sense of, of the excellencies of God, the elaborate, exquisite ornamentation of this golden lampstand, you suddenly begin to have a glimmer of what it is the beauty of holiness coming out of darkness and into this beautiful light. Only priests were allowed into the holy place where they could fellowship with God and be surrounded by this beautiful golden light. The, our credentials by the blood of Jesus have invited us into the very throne room of the universe. We have left judgment behind us out in the courtyard. And now we enter cleansed and purified into this holy place. And that magnificent beauty of the solid gold walls and the golden lampstand illuminating the other pieces of furniture in this place. Beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words. It's an engineering marvel, this golden lampstand, with the one central vine and the six branches each one of them having a lamp on top that held the reservoir of pure beaten olive oil and wicks to light the light. 
the priests would go in there twice a day to refill the oil and to trim the wicks, making sure that the light shone constantly. The oil that's used for this golden lampstand, Exodus chapter 27, verse 20, that I gave you at the top, clear oil of beaten olives. This oil was... Uh, was um, created by putting olives in a mortar and pounding them, not putting them in a mill and crushing them. And this mortar and pestle action created the clearest, best, purest olive oil. Olive oil throughout scripture is known to be a symbol of gladness. And it is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit who is ready to fill us up every morning and every evening with a fresh, fresh source. And that makes me very glad. And all the times in between too, he will never run dry. His supply will never be depleted. And there are so many aspects of, of the study of light. I want to save that for next week. And today I'd like to just spend some time looking at these beautiful design details. It has been said that this Golden lampstand is the clearest picture of Jesus Christ that we have in the tabernacle. I think when I read about it, that it's a description almost of the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus shone so brightly and the glory of the Lord just burst forth. I'll let you decide that as we go. We'll take these design elements one at a time, starting with the pure gold. It has no underpinning of acacia wood. And that's a design feature that we see in three pieces of furniture. We saw it in the laver that was made of solid brass, no underpinning of acacia wood, here at the golden lampstand, and then in the future when we get to the mercy seat, they were both made of solid gold. Humanity, or the um, acacia wood is a picture of Christ's humanity. And so as I've considered that over the years and just thought, in these three pieces of furniture, the humanity of Christ is not necessarily represented. What does that mean? And what I've come to believe is that here in the, uh, out in the courtyard, I should say, at the labor, we see the word of truth. Golden lampstand, the light of God. The mercy seat, when we get in there, the mercy of God. And these things are holy God. They are holy and they are holy God. They are not touched by frail humanity. They are never going to grow weak. The truth, the light, and the mercy of God, they will never be diminished in any way by any of the things that beset us in our humanity. And I think that's why God has them designed to omit that human aspect. Now, Jesus put on human flesh and tabernacled among us so that we could see what these things look like in action, but they are perfect they are glorious, they are divine and holy. Jesus prayed right before he went to the cross. John chapter 17, verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. From the foundation of the world, this glorious, beautiful light shone. He set aside much of what made him divine, but he has since picked it up and taken it up again. And he is seated right now at the right hand of the Father, glorious and beautiful. And the almond blossoms that you, we read repeatedly, almond blossoms, bulbs, and flowers, 
The almond is symbolic of resurrection. We saw that in brief in Aaron's rod that budded, and we will come back to it again in a future study. His rod had the almond on it in every stage of development, but it was a fruitful, uh, living branch that had come from something dead. So it is symbolic of resurrection, from a dead stick to a fruitful branch. It is also the first fruit in Israel, the first thing to blossom in the land of Israel. In late January and early February, you just see the landscape white with almond blossoms all over. And to the Jewish people, it's a symbol of resurrection in that from the dead of winter to the promise and the hope of spring, they see that being brought forth in the almond blossoms. Maybe when some of you go to Israel in a year's time, you will see this for yourself. It was such a sweet picture to me as we just drove through the landscape and there were fields white with almond blossoms before anything else was in bloom. Jesus himself claims to be the source of new life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He identifies himself with this picture. In Acts chapter 26, verse 23, we are told that the suffering Christ would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the people and to the Gentiles, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. First to rise from the dead in order to proclaim light. Now also, I learned this on our tour in Israel, that the Jews look upon the almond as symbolic of vigilance and watchfulness. And they take that from Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Jeremiah 1, 11 and 12. God is speaking. The word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you see, Jeremiah? And you have to have light if you want to see something. What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then the Lord said, you have seen well, and now here's God's boast, for I am watching over my word to perform it. His word will be preserved forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will endure forever, and he is watchful over it. There is no doubt about it. But what I get from this as my part, as one of the member of the royal priesthood, is that I have to be diligent. I need to be watchful and vigilant about my walk with Christ. I need to be sure that I am staying in a position near to my Savior, in that place where the Holy Spirit can fill me afresh morning and evening and all the time in between and even into the night watches. My relationship with Christ is something I need to guard and be vigilant, watchful, Psalm 20, uh, 73, 28, the psalmist says, The nearness of my God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And that brings us to the hammered work. Remember as we read in Exodus, verses 31 and 36, hammered work of one piece with it. A single hammered work of gold, it says. The bulbs, the branches, 
one piece with it. All of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. This lampstand was not to be made by melting down the gold and pouring it into a man-made mold like they did with the golden calf. It was meant to be beaten, hammered into the form. God especially equipped craftsmen and artisans with some supernatural knowledge in order for them to build this thing according to the design plans. Solid, pure gold is also heavy. And what modern engineers still cannot figure out is how do you create this out of this weight of gold without the branches just snapping off? They have not been able to figure out how to do it. The one that we saw there from the Temple Institute, some wealthy Hebrew donated money, and I can't remember the exact amount. If you go to the Temple Institute, you can ask, but I think it was something like $22 million they donated for the building of that lampstand, but they couldn't build it out of solid gold. So they created a framework, and then, then through some chemical process, they dipped it in or sprayed it, however they did it, with the gold, and the gold permeated the metal that was holding all the branches up. So it's not a solid gold lampstand that you see, but it's the best that they could come up with in the, with the technology they have. What a supernatural source of light this lampstand is. But we are part of it. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches hammered of one piece with it. Do you realize how torturously beaten Jesus was at his crucifixion? Every aspect of this tabernacle has some reminder to us of the torture that he experienced. Everything is either cut down, crushed, pounded, beaten, set on fire. How do you get pure gold? You put it through the fire. And here we have this detail of all of it together as one hammered work. If you want to take some time and read through Psalm 22 and the chapters of Isaiah chapter 50, 52, and 53, you will read there some of the torture that he endured as they ripped the beard out of his face and scourged him and mocked him and spat upon him and beat him with their fists and crushed a crown of thorns upon his head and there's so much more. And all of that brings us to the, the next design feature and that is the one central shaft with the six branches, all integrated, all one unified whole, single hammered work. Again, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And I ask myself every time I review these notes and read this portion of scripture, am I one with Christ? Am I united with him in his suffering? Am I truly hammered? Do I really believe it when I say I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me? Is that really true of me? If it is, my light will shine in a way that this world cannot deny it. We lost a great saint of God yesterday. Yes, Billy Graham. Boy, did his light shine. Would that we all had a testimony that would bring God that kind of glory. But it doesn't come unless you're hammered of one piece with him. Hebrews chapter 2 
verse 11 says that the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are one. We are one with Christ, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. The Lord Jesus is not ashamed to own you. What a gift. Now, in the time that we have left, let's take a look more at this. I am the vine, you are the branches. John chapter 15 is where we will go. And we are going to kind of hop around the chapter a little bit. John chapter 15. And when you go home, I think it'd be a great idea just sit alone with the Lord and let him pour this light over you. John chapter 15. Starting in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Verse 4, abide in me. That's an imperative. And the subject of an imperative sentence is you. So this is a command. You abide in me. And then Jesus says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That beautiful, ornamented, exquisitely decorated lampstand with all of that fruitful almond in all of its stages of growth, and the light shining from it. That's what God wants for each one of us. He wants us to be salt and light in this dark world and to carry him out into this world and show the whole world how glorious and how beautiful, perfect and holy he is. But what does it mean to abide? I always look these words up. I look them up in either the Hebrew or the Greek, and then I go look them up in an etymology dictionary because I want to know why did the translators pick this word to convey that Hebrew thought? Abide is a, is a simple word, but it means a great deal. It means to remain rather than scurry away, getting busy with much ado about nothing. It means to be held and kept or treasured and protected. It also means, in reference to time, it means to endure, to survive and live. And it carries with it the condition of remaining one. Abiding also means waiting for someone. Every single branch in Jesus Christ is waiting enduring, surviving, and trusting in his return. There is a forward motion that's implicit in this word abide. It's a Christian walk after all, not a Christian sit. And we are meant to occupy until he comes. Wait with hope and great expectation for his snatching us up and taking us home to be with him. It's what we do and how we abide in the waiting time that brings him joy and also allows us to be joyful and fruitful all the time. All of it, though, is born of his great love for us. That's where it started. For God so loved the world that he gave. We are saved by grace, 
But love is, the what, is what provided that gift of grace. Look what he says in John chapter 15, continuing on verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, and I can't imagine how you'd weigh or measure that. How much does the Father love his Son? Just as he has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full full to the top with that clear oil of the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants for each one of us. Have you all ever seen, I'm going to share this illustration with you because this helps me understand what abiding is. I have some experience with this personally, but I've also observed it over the course of decades, and I know it to be universally true. Anybody in here ever seen a two-year-old that does not want to be held? Anybody in this room? Okay, you can watch this every Sunday morning. You go down here and just stand in the children's ministry, and I don't care, the biggest, strongest man on campus has a hard time holding a two that doesn't want to be held. They will plant their little feet in your torso and launch themselves. They have no idea how badly they could hurt themselves. And their little heads are like cannonballs. Once my little Stephen, my, my middle son Stephen, threw his head and busted my lip open, I was seeing stars for a month, I think. It's incredible. They have no idea how their struggle could wind up in tremendous hurt for them. They just want what they want when they want it. In this illustration, you are the two-year-old. We want what we want when we want it, and we struggle against our Father who loves us. Give me my way. Let me down. That's not what abiding looks like. Now, in contrast to that, have you ever seen a two-year-old that wants to be held? They just melt into you. They succumb. My little Stephen, who gave me the vicious headbutt, used to reach up. It was during the 80s. I always had a French braid down my, the back of my head, and he would just reach up and hold my hair and just lay there. When they have their head on, their, on your chest like that, they can hear your heartbeat. And that sweet bond that you share, they just wrap those little legs around you as far as they can go, and those little pudgy fingers, and they just melt away. And I always think, that must be what the Lord wants to see. He wants to see us come a-running and leap into his arms and just relax and rest there and listen to his heartbeat. What a beautiful thing it is to abide in the Lord. I think that as a parent, some of the sweetest times in my life have been those abiding times with my children. I am no singer, y'all, but to sit and rock and sing little praise songs to a little two-year-old and have them sing it back, how sweet is that? To sit with them and hear their little joys and their sorrows and weep a little weep with them over their hurts and laugh with them and just enjoy the bond that you share with them. It's one of the most precious parts of being a mom that I can, that I can name. And I do think that's what God wants from us. He just wants us to want to be still and know that he is God. One peace with him. That's the deal. I still love it. 
just a few years ago when Stephen was 25 years old. I was sitting down and he walked over and sat in my lap. I could not breathe and I didn't care. And he's 30 now and I would take him again. If he wanted to sit in my lap and just let me hold him, I would do it. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. All of it shall be of one piece with it, hammered work, refined as though by fire. This magnificent lampstand was designed by God to be a picture of his son. Supernatural light source, illuminating, warming, comforting, it's energy and truly beautiful beyond description. A picture of Christ and of his gospel. And we are bearers of it. Everything about it is holy. And we are invited to enter into the holy place. To worship the Lord of glory. Psalm 29.2 Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. What a privilege it is to be one with the Lord of glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for making us one with your son. And I do pray that you would help me and help these women to walk worthy of that incredible position of grace and of glory and that we would bring glory to your name teach us every day father in every way teach us what it is to abide in you and we know your promise that if we do we will bear much fruit in christ jesus our savior in whose name we pray and all the bride of christ said amen, amen. 